Amen. <laughs> Amen. That was good. Praise the Lord. Well, that's good. Some good preaching already tonight, right? Amen. And uh, thank God for Brother Johnson. And he, his life really fits in with my sermon tonight. And uh, I thank God for him and what he's done. I'm thankful that John Marshall and his wife are here tonight. Amen. We're old friends. Probably more old than friends, but we're old friends. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the best friends are your old friends, right? Amen. Somebody that knows more about you and still loves you. That's quite an achievement to have somebody like that, I think. And we thank God for them tonight and them being here. That was a great sermon. Amen. I uh, kind of winced at the illustration of the policeman, though, didn't you? <laughs> Blue and red lights flashing in your rearview mirror. <laughs> There's something fearful about that. You know what I mean? Kind of gets you. I was uh, uh, thinking about uh, 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 our pastor in Cleveland, our former pastor, Dr. Roy Thompson. His daughter is quite a quite a girl, and she was driving down the street, and the policeman pulled her over because uh, she went through a red light or was uh, speeding or something. She had a little boy, Jonathan. He's a grown man with children now, but he was just a little boy. And the policeman came walking up there, and Jonathan stuck his head out behind his mama's head out the window, and he, he looked at him and said, my mama said you're a dumb jerk. <laughs> <laughs> well, she got a ticket, John. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and Roy, Roy Thompson, he, he was always uh, arguing with the police over something like that. And uh, one of them pulled him over for running a red light. And he said, I know me. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the court and I'm going to prove that I, that guy didn't see me and I didn't row, 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 row. So he went up to the courtroom and he had a board there and he showed where the policeman was sitting and where the light was and, and did some artwork, you know, for the judge to see and said, I was over here and there's no way that that policeman could see whether I ran that red light or not. And, all the, and the judge said, uh, guilty is charged. <laughs> and Roy said, oh, what do you mean guilty is charged? I told you that. He said, you said that you thought you didn't run the red light and the policeman said you absolutely did. So I rule with the policeman. Oh, Roy said, oh, so it's just a matter of semantics. He said, and you shut up or you'll spend three days in jail. So after it was all over, he was telling me about it. But that, that judge and that policeman, and I said, uh, well, your wife was with you. When you went up through that light, I said, why didn't you have her to come in and testify that, that uh, you didn't run a red light? He said, because she said I was guilty. I ran a red light. <laughs> she wasn't going to lie for him. <laughs> oh, it's, it's funny, right? We, uh, I, I heard about uh, uh, a, a blonde police lady that was uh, stopping traffic. A blonde. Can I tell a blonde joke? Do we have any blondes here tonight besides Brother Johnson? Amen. <laughs> Some of them used to be blonde, 
But now it's another color. Lady said to her husband, Will you love me when I'm old and gray? He said, I've loved you through five shades now. Why won't I love you then? Amen. <laughs> and this blonde policeman pulled over. Somebody was speeding. She walked up and it was a blonde lady driver. And she said, I want some identification, please. Picture identification. And the blonde lady looked in her purse and found a mirror. Oh, she said, that's me right there. And the blonde policeman looked at her and she said, Oh, why didn't you tell me it was a it was a police lady? I wouldn't have stopped you. <laughs> I was driving one time. I have to tell you this. When I was driving one time down the road, lickety split, faster than I should, and the policeman pulled me over. And I said to him, I said, he said, why are you driving so fast here for? I said, well, I'm a preacher and this is a missionary and he just got back from the mission field, and we've been good buddies and good friends, and I wouldn't pay any attention to what I was driving. If you said I'm speeding, I'm guilty. I'll, I'll admit it. And he said, you're a pastor of the church? I said, yeah, Youngstown Baptist Church. And you're a missionary? He said, yes, sir. He said, he said, preacher, let me tell you something. This is an Oldsmobile, not a, a fiery chariot. So he said, slow it down out here on this highway. He said, I know you're going to go to heaven, but I don't want you to go to heaven today out here on my highway. Slow it down. Amen. I said, yes, sir. I sure will. He said, go on, but don't speed anymore. I said, yes, sir. I won't. <laughs> nice to be able to have some mercy out there. Amen. But uh, it sure is good to be here tonight, right? Amen. And uh, all of that kind of leads up to the book of Ruth. Now you say, how, how does it? Well, just make your own imagination. Book of Ruth, chapter 1, and verse number 1. And uh, really, I guess maybe this book ought to be called the book of Naomi and Ruth. But both of them are probably equal characters in the book. But it talks about uh, a man uh, who was a Bethlehemite uh, from Judah. And this is what it says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. Now, I'm going to kind of go along with this here and try to get done by 10.30. Okay, but uh, we'll, we'll want to look at the story first, okay? You, you may have read the story, you may have known the story, but we're going to, we're going to look at it anyhow. There was a famine in the land. I don't know if you've ever been to a place where there was a famine. That's a terrible thing. We feed starving children in the Philippines and in Haiti. All that we possibly can. And uh, my wife and I do without a lot of things in order to save money to feed kids. And we just sent $2,000 over the other day uh, to help a Filipino pastor in his work with the people in his city. And I do everything I can. I, 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 think, about, I think about a famine, I, and I must admit to you that, that of all my experiences over the years, the most heart-wrenching, and I've seen a lot of them, I've seen a lot of dead men, and I've seen a lot of suffering people and a lot of people dying with cancer. 
And uh, I, I've seen, I've seen uh, in a battlefield, I've seen uh, a whole uh, entourage of people coming away from the battlefield, all blowed up and shot up and pick up truckloads full of dead bodies. I've seen some horrible things. But I'll tell you the most terrible thing I've ever seen in my life is a starving child. And I'll do anything that I possibly can to keep my grandkids from a famine and to do everything I can to feed other kids that are in a famine. Amen there or not? You ought to too. We live in this land of so much and, you know, we throw away more food in the city of, uh, of uh, New York every day off of our plates than the rest of the world eats. Shame on us for that. Famine's a terrible thing. Now, I must admit to you tonight that I can feel a little bit of these people's decision on leaving a famine. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. By the way, that's a place where there wasn't any famine. If a famine came to America, I must admit to you, I wouldn't blame anybody to go to Canada or Mexico if there wasn't a famine there and live there. I wouldn't blame them. Because a famine is a terrible thing. He and his wife and his two sons But yet, even though this famine is terrible, I'm trying to lay a foundation here now to make some application on tonight, so stick with me. Even though a famine is terrible, he shouldn't have left the land. Because God put the Jews in the land. And they should have stayed there. Now, I can make a lot of applications about this. Amen? I believe God put Pete Montoro in this church. And he stayed here for 20 years. Now, a lot of preachers would have just pulled up and left, but he stayed. Brother Johnson has been over there in Brooklyn Heights preaching for 17 years. Or is it 18 now? 17, 18 years. And I'm telling you right now, he's dug and dug and worked and worked. And I mean, I can recall some terrible times. I mean... I remember coming to church one time, that lady laying on the front steps of the church. I mean, there's some horrible, I mean, that, that, that was a horrible experience. I mean, and, you know, he's been through some tough times over there. I remember in a park one time when some lesbian woman was going to try to kick us out of that park. And she threatened, I'll come down to your church and I'll protest against I said, no, you won't. You're too lazy. You won't do that. But uh, kind of put Brother Johnson in jeopardy. But you know me, I just got this big mouth. I just can't keep saying what I think. But you know what? These men have come and stayed. And I think that business of stick to sometimes is a real good application for Christians and for preachers and for everybody else. When God calls you and puts you in a place, maybe you ought to just stay there. Until God moves you out of the place. And there's a lot of preaching to be done on that. And there's a lot of illustrations. But I won't have to go on because I want to tell the story. So he took his wife and his two sons. And they went to Moab. The name uh, of the man was uh, 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 
Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malion and Chilion, Ephraimites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they came into the land of Moab and continued there. <clears throat> really, they weren't where God wanted them to be in the first place, so they just went to a place, another place, stayed there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left of her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. Another thing they shouldn't have done. They weren't supposed to marry out of their tribes. But they married these Moabites. And the people of Moab were idol worshippers and, and had strange gods. And that's the reason why God didn't want them to marry. It wasn't a racial thing. There is nothing in the Bible about racial marriage. Nothing at all. It wasn't a racial thing. It was a religious thing. And that's what it says here. And the, wife, and, the, and the wives of the women of Moab, and the name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other, Ruth, and they dwelled there about ten years, and Malon and Chilion died also, both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Here is Naomi coming with her husband to this strange land with her two sons, and her husband and her two sons died after the two sons was married, and all she has left is two Moab daughter-in-laws. And she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people and given them bread. Wherefore she went both out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on, uh, on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her daughters-in-law, Go, return each, of, uh, each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Uh, and then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. Now Naomi is going to go back, because she's heard some good news. And so she tells her daughters-in-law, I'm going to go back, but you don't have to go with me, because you're, you're from the land of Moab. You'd be better off just to go back to your people, and uh, back to your, your way, your traditions, and maybe uh, back to your gods. Well, the Bible says here that, uh, that these girls, in verse 14, they lifted up their voice and wept, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clave unto her. The one girl said, I'll go back, and she kissed her, and no doubt she loved her because she was a marvelous lady. But Ruth said, not me. I'm going to hang on to you. And in verse number 16 and 17, there are two beautiful verses, and you've probably heard a song written about them. Maybe you've heard them repeated even at a wedding. My wife and I had those verses engraved inside of our wedding rings when we got wedding rings to get married. And Ruth said in verse 16, Entreat me not to leave thee, nor return from following after thee, for whether thou goest, I will go, and 
For thou lodgest, I will lodge, and thy people shall my, be my people, and thy God my God. Wherefore, uh, wherefore thou diest, I will die. Uh, where, that, where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do uh, so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Who said, wherever you're going to go, I'm going to with you. So in verse 23, Naomi returns with Ruth. And when they get back to the land, she now she's now the stranger in the land. Uh, we find that uh, this Ruth Moab, this uh, Moabitess Ruth, and uh, her uh, her mother-in-law uh, come back to the land, and uh, they're in need. So uh, the Bible says that uh, that Ruth the Moabitess in verse two of chapter two uh, said to Naomi. Let me now go into the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. She said, we need some help here. We need some food. Let me go into the field and glean after the harvesters. Now, I don't know if you've ever done any of that gleaning or not, but I grew up on a farm, so we did some gleaning. Back years ago, after when the people would harvest the corn or the wheat, There'd always be some laying on the ground and the farmers would uh, permit people to come in and pick up what was left after the harvest. And uh, my dad and I used to go out with a wagon, uh, with a, uh, a trailer and a car and we'd go out in the field, drive out in a frozen field and we'd pick up corn that had been missed and we'd throw it in a wagon and that's the way we fed our hogs and our cattle. It was free. The farmer was glad to see you do it because that would be getting it up off of his ground because next year it would, uh, it would grow a crop that maybe they didn't want in that field because what was left there would be like seed. And she was going out gleaning. Now along in this scene of Ruth and Naomi comes a big barrel-chested, two-fisted, farmer by the name of Boaz. Now girls, all you young unmarried girls, you would probably like to meet a guy like Boaz. In my imagination, I think he's a big handsome guy and rich. You know, it's nice to meet a guy and fall in love with him, girls, that's handsome and strong and everything else, but it is extraordinarily nice if he's rich. Amen. How many of you girls here tonight married a rich man? Let's see your hand. Oh, none of you. Lois, raise your hand. Oh, there she is. <laughs> but here's Boaz on the scene. And that's what it says in verse number one here in chapter two. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech. And his name was Boaz. That's really not a very romantic name. But if he's a big square-jawed guy with a nice haircut and handsome and, and smells good, girls, uh, and his pocket's full of money, who cares if his name's Boaz? Amen? 
We talked about our names last night. We had a lot of fun with names, amen? Names are funny, right? Amen? I uh, heard, uh, heard about this uh, little boy that went to school on the first day of the week. His first and the first year class. And the mamas were told to pin the name of the little child on their boy's shirt or a girl's blouse so that the teacher would know their names. One little old boy came in there and there was a name on it and it was opium. The teacher said, opium? So she called up the mom and said, I've got a little boy here that's yours and we asked, put their name and the pin on their shirt but he comes in here and his name's Little name on his shirt is Opium. She said, yeah, that's my little son, Opium. So they named him after his father, Opium. His name is Opium too. She said, I can't call him Opium. You know, that's a bad substance. She said, that's him. That's my little boy, Opium. Said, yes, but... uh, don't you know that that substance will make you sick? She said, that's my boy, opium. Said, that's him. Said, I named him after his father. Said, yes, but opium is a dope. She said, that's him, that's my boy. Funny about names, amen. But Boaz is Boaz, amen. And here he comes along the scene, this big handsome farmer, and he's rich. And Ruth goes out in the field to glean in his field after the harvesters. Now, if you look at verse 5 of chapter 2, the Bible said, Then said Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? He looks out there in that field and he sees this pretty girl. (whistles) Whose girl is this girl? She must have a little bit looked a little bit different from the Jewish girls. She must have had maybe darker hair, blacker eyes, because that's what these Moabites were, and maybe olive skin. And uh, he looks out and sees her, and he says, "Ha cha cha, that is a pretty girl." And they said, "Well." This woman in verse six is a Moabitess damsel. The last part of the verse that came with Naomi out of the country of Moab. Well, he inquires right away about her. He finds out what she is. And Boaz, you know, he, he's kind of an aggressive guy. In verse 8, Boaz said to Ruth, he goes out to talk to her. He said, you can glean in my field anytime you want to. abide here by my maiden said you don't have to feel like you're a stranger here these girls that are working for me just come right in with them and just help yourself you know and uh, then the bible says that he not only did that but he told his workers he said uh, i want you to not only go out and glean the field and harvest the field and and let the gleaners pick up behind you and what dropped on the front but Every once in a while, just drop a handful of purpose uh, for Ruth. Just give her something extra. You know, I mean, he 
you know, he was a good man, man of good reputation. And uh, finally, it kind of lit up, and you can read all this later on, but I don't want to take too much time with it. You, you, you can find out that they had a big harvest party after the harvest was over, and she was invited, of course, because he told her, now, you can drink water with my servants, you can eat with my maidens, you, 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 you have a special treatment around here because of what you are and who you've been. And even later on, he calls her virtuous. She's a virtuous girl, and he knows it. And he's attracted to her. You know, there isn't anything more beautiful than virtue. Amen? Just good old down-to-earth purity. And that's what God wants out of us as Christians. He wants us to be pure. Well, the story goes on, and of course, uh, what happens is they, they get attracted to one another, and she asks him through a ceremony to pay her debts that her husband owed, because back in those days, they were responsible for their husband's debts. And Boaz was willing to do it because he was uh, one of the nearest kins to her husband and he paid the bill. And the Bible says here in chapter 4 and verse 13, and you sure want to look at this one. 4.13 it says, So Boaz took Ruth and she was his wife. He married this pretty girl. Well, why wouldn't he? She had a great reputation. She was a, was a care for her mother-in-law. She, was a, she chose the gods of, uh, of, uh, of Naomi because I'm sure she saw something in Naomi that was real and she wanted to be as real as she was. And the Bible says he took her for a wife and when he went uh, in unto her, the Lord gave her conception and she bare a son. They had this romance and they had a child. And in verse 17 of chapter 4, then the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, there is a son born of Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. You see, this whole occasion... Now you can see the value of all of this. It all boils down now to where Boaz and Ruth and their marriage produces a son that becomes a forefather of Jesus Christ himself. Paul, how would you like to be a progenitor of that line, in that line? And here she is a Gentilist. She's not even a Jew. And, and really, I guess according to their traditions, she would be eliminated from being a part of that family because she's a Gentile. But God includes her in there. Adopts her and brings her into that family. Boy, we could preach on that, amen. We're all Gentiles and wicked sinners. And Jesus Christ, the lovely Son of God, forgives us of our sins and adopts us into the family of God. Hallelujah. Praise His name. Wow. This is a great, isn't that a great story? You'd think there'd be a bunch of romance books written about this occasion. 
for girls to read and get all emotional over. Girls read these novels and they get all wrapped up in reading these and imagining. And uh, I always read, if I was going to read a book, I always read about cowboys shooting one another. Well, that's romantic, isn't it? But uh, here's a beautiful story, girls. A lovely story. It's something you'd want to read and read to your family. Now, I just want to say to you tonight that all this beautiful story, this beautiful ending, this wonderful event is all focused down to one unnamed person. And that's found over in chapter 1 again and verse number 6. And she, that's Naomi, rose with her daughters-in-law that she might return to the country of Moab for she had heard in the country of Moab how the Lord had visited His people in giving them bread. Somebody came from that faraway country with good news. And the result of all of this was this beautiful romance, this beautiful ending, and this Gentilus being included in the family of David and uh, all the generations to follow right up to Mary and the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, Judah. Amen? Right back to the same little place, Bethlehem, Judah. Oh, it's a beautiful story, don't you think? But it all results because of one person with good news that there's bread in the land. Wow. I kind of remember that's true of the, the prodigal son, amen? He was remembering his dad and he said there's bread enough and to spare. Hey, listen, let me tell you something. There's always bread in the Father's house. There's always supply in the Father's house. The church is here to supply the needs of hungry people for the gospel. It's a marvelous story, is it not? And it all boils down to just one little messenger with a story about some good things happening in the Father's house. Now all of us Christians, every one of us, we ought to take an example of this and say, I want to be like this bearer of good news. I want to say something and I want to do something that's going to affect the work of God in such a dramatic way. As this one man, unknown man, not mentioned, comes along and he tells a story that, re, that, that gets great results. Oh, the story is good, isn't it? The story is real. The story is beautiful. Thank God for people who bear the good news of the gospel and affect the lives of a lot of people. I've got to tell you some stories about that in this application that I'm making. I think about uh, our one granddaughter in Bible college, uh, a young man and her fell in love together. And he told his pastor, said, Pastor, and his pastor was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and he told his pastor, he said, Pastor, I, I like a girl at Bible college and I, like to, I, want to, I want to try to marry her. And her last name is Clayton. And his pastor said, uh, hmm, 
I wonder if she's in a relation to that evangelist that won my grandmother to Christ. I said, huh, I don't know. Said his name's Larry Clayton. Oh, I don't know. Well, we find out that what happens is, one Sunday morning I was preaching, and there was a woman there from the flats, which is a very poor area of Cleveland, that had come on the bus, and I must admit to you, there wasn't anybody there to get 50 cents for her, so far as her, her position in society would be. And uh, she came forward, and I knelt down beside her, and I led her to Christ, and she got saved. Well, she went home, and she started working on her kids to come on the bus, and her kids started coming on her bus, and finally her husband came with her, and he was an absolute motorcycle hippie. And I mean a bad one. He'd been a prisoner in, uh, in North Korea during the Korean conflict. And they had abused him. And the abuse that he went through took away his health. And he had been, as a young man, he studied for the priesthood. And he even knew how to write and read Latin. I mean, he was, he was a smart guy. And he ends up coming to church and getting saved and he surrenders his life later on and goes as a missionary to Haiti and takes his whole family down to Haiti. He came back and I helped him start a Haitian church in Florida and he started a radio station in, uh, in Haines City, Florida. He was the one who started, basically started the station there, started a Haitian church there and he got sick and he died. But out of his family now comes missionaries. One of, his, one of his daughters married a young preacher from our church and they've got about 12 kids and I don't know how them kids are going all over the world preaching the gospel. They're going everywhere serving the Lord. Going to Bible college and out of Bible college they go and uh, here just uh, recently if, uh, if you, some of you might have heard uh, one of their sons, Gabriel, nice kid, had a bad heart and, and just as a young man dropped over dead and it was a shock to all of us because we all loved him. But God has used that family. And here comes this preacher uh, out of that family uh, that pastors the church uh, where my grandson-in-law got saved. You know, it's a marvelous thing. You know, you don't ever know what you're doing. I mean, you're, you're, you're casting your bread upon the water. When it comes back to you, it's going to be abundant. And, and when you do for God, it may be seemed sometimes a little thing, but God will take a little thing. Uh, I mean, little as much when God is in it is what I'm saying here tonight. Amen? I mean, I heard about a girl... Her name, her name was Peggy Covell. Just Peggy Covell. And the story is that uh, there was a Japanese who led the, the attack on Pearl Harbor. His, uh, his name was Fuchida. And this Fuchida, Japanese leader of the attack on Pearl Harbor, was the one that said, Toro, Toro, attack, attack. He was the leader that led him there. And he had a real great uh, service in the, ja in the Japanese uh, Air Force and Navy. He even was one of the leaders in the attack that, uh, uh, that attack of Midway. And uh, that, was a, that was a great defeat for the Japanese, but it was a, it was a big naval 
a thing, and he was involved in that. He went down to the Philippines, and he, he fought the Americans down there. And all along, he probably should have been killed, but he wasn't killed. Fujita became a national hero in Japan. Everybody knew Mitsu Fujita. And uh, after the war was over, he went down to greet some... And the fact of the matter is, when the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he was sent down with a group of scientists down to assess the damage. He was there a uh, day before, and he went to, to, to Tokyo. And then after the bomb, he went down there, and everybody in his entourage died of radiation except him. He didn't die at Pearl Harbor. He thought he was going to die. He didn't die at Midway. He thought he was going to die. He didn't die in the Philippines. He didn't die here, and he didn't die there, and he didn't die of radiation. And he says, why is it that I haven't died? Now, God, some, some kind of a God is looking over me. And he worshipped the emperor's God, but on the radio, the emperor came on and said, I'm not God. I, I knew a man that was in Tokyo when he said that. He told the people what he got. And the people came out in the streets and bowed their heads. And they, they didn't move for hours because they were so brokenhearted to think the emperor was not God. And then Fuchida went down to a, to a place where troops were coming in to talk to him to hear how the Americans had abused them and, and beat them and slaughtered them. And he finds out that uh, the leader getting off the uh, the, off the boat of uh, the prisoners coming back knew Fuchida and came up and talking to him and he said, tell me how terrible the Americans treated you. Oh, he said, that's wrong. That's not true. The Americans didn't treat us like that. We treated the Americans like that, but they didn't treat us like that. And he said, in fact, he said that, that, was, a, that was a missionary in uh, Panay that uh, American missionary that uh, our troops captured and tortured to death. And they had a daughter. Her name was Peggy Covell. And we all saw real, true Christianity in her. She helped us. She prayed for us. Even though we had killed her father and mother, she was kind to us and shared her food with us and wished us well and told us about Jesus Christ. Fuchita said, I never heard anything like that in my life. Now, twist that around a little bit, and it's going to take me a little while to tell all this story, but hang on. There was, a, there was, there was another man who was involved in the war in Japan and uh, his name was Jacob Deshazer. Jacob Deshazer was a pilot on one of Jimmy Doolittle's planes that bombed Tokyo. And uh, they were to bomb Tokyo and then crash land in China, hoping that the Chinese would help and find them and take them and take care of them as American pilots. But he landed and the Japanese got him and brought him back to Tokyo. And they abused him to no end. They put him in a cage and marched him, through the, marched him through the streets in a cage. And the Japanese had open sewers in those days. And they dip, dipped out of the open sewers and threw it on him and cursed him. And they put him in prison. And Deshazer begged them to get him a Bible. And somehow they found him a King James Bible and brought it to him. And Deshazer inside that prison, abused and mistreated, 
trusted Christ as his Savior and got saved. He came back to America and got ready and he went back to Japan and he wrote a track. I was a prisoner of the Japanese. And one day, there was somebody at a train station passing out DeShazer's tracks and Fuchida got one of them. And Fuchida read that track and worked about it and thought about it and and prayed about it and mulled it over in his mind. And on September 19, I think, see, I have it written down here someplace. I'd like to find it. September 1949, Fuchida took Christ as his Savior. A national hero of Japan. And for the rest of his life, Along with Jacob DeShazer, they made an evangelistic team. And they preached all over America, all over Japan, all over Europe. Preaching how Jesus Christ would bring two bad enemies together. Partially because of the testimony of a little girl called Peggy Covell. You never know what you're doing, people, when you're doing something for God. There's some of you here tonight that's got loved ones and you're just worried to death about them, getting saved and all that. Pray that God would put them, put somebody in their life like Peggy Covell. Pray that God would bring them to, to somebody that would give them the gospel. Uh, like this, this man that came uh, to the land of Moab with good news. There's bread and enough to spare in the Father's house. Wow. That's the job we Christians have to do. That's the job this church has been doing. That's the job we're trying to enlist you in here. Get busy for God in here. You'll find great rewards are going to be yours. And you're going to affect. Think of how many people it was affected by the birth of Obed. All the way down through David and all the way down through the whole lineage, the whole way to a little little cattle stall and out in the field at Bethlehem when the, when the host of heaven was filling up the sky with announcement and the shepherds heard it and came and, and bowed down before this king of kings and lord of lords. And it was all affected because somebody came to Moab with good news. God help me to be a man of good news. Let's bow our heads in prayer. I'm going to ask you a few questions here tonight before I pray. Let me ask you this tonight. How many here tonight would say, Preacher, I used to be the bearer of good news. I used to be a soul winner. I used to be excited about getting somebody to church. Inviting somebody to the house of God. But somehow I've lost my excitement I've lost my goal and my grit. And uh, preacher, I've got involved in all kinds of things. 
I've got involved in all kind of issues that are not really relevant to the work and ministry of God. You know, you can do that. You can get so wrapped up in doing things that maybe are good things, but are not the best thing. God has put you here. God has put you in the place where you are to be a bearer of good news. And everything else should be a sideline. How many here say, Preacher, I used to be excited about it, but I'm not anymore. Pray for me that I could get back. All excited about the work of the Lord like I should. Slip up your hand tonight. How many in the audience say, Pray for me, Preacher? That's a lot of hands. God bless you. Now, God sees your hand, and He's going to do something about you raising your hand here tonight. God bless you, and I'm going to pray for you. How many here tonight say, Preacher, I've never won any to, anybody to Christ. I've not really been a good testimony. I've not really been a soul winner. I've not really been excited. But I want to be preacher. And preacher, pray for me tonight that I could win souls to Christ and God could use me in the life of a lot of other people. Pray for me tonight. Would you slip up your hand tonight? Boy, that's about the rest of us. Amen. God bless us. Amen. God bless you tonight. Now that some of you here never have been and you don't want to be, and if I were you, I would really be concerned about that if I were you. And I'd pray about that. I'd be the first one to the altar tonight. God wants to do something for you. And God will amplify it. God will bless it and use it in a multitude of generations. If you let him. I wouldn't give you much for that woman that I knelt down by and led to Christ. But I'll tell you, God was interested in her. And God had something great planned for her. And I'm just tickled to death that I could have had a little part in it. God looks at us, not, not, not what we are, but what we can be, the potential of it all. And I hope tonight, you can say, by the grace of God, if I'm here in this church for another 20 years or for whatever it is, I want God to use me. I want us to stand together, please. I'm going to ask Julia to play 520, if you would, please, 520. We're going to sing that in a moment, but let's bow our heads in a moment. And I want to just give us an invitation here while she quietly plays this song. I, I want you to slip out and come tonight. I, I want you to come and pray. You that raise your hands, come on, pray about this. Let's fill up the front tonight like we did before. Let's talk to God. Say, God, I, I want to be the bearer of good news. I want you to use me in a manifold way. I want to be... I want to be blessed. I want to get my attention on the right direction. Come on tonight. What a beautiful old song. Well, I wonder, have I given my best to Jesus? For He has done so much for me. Father in heaven, as I come before you tonight, I pray, oh God, that you'd bless us, Lord, in this place. I pray, God, that you'd take whatever we have. It might not be a lot of talent. It might not be a lot of grit. It might not even be a lot of self-confidence. But help us, Lord, whatever we've got to give it to you. 
Send us a revival here tonight in our hearts. There's some here more than others that ought to quit whatever they're doing and get busy for God. And I pray, Father, tonight that you'd work in this place tonight for the Lord God's glory. Bless us, O God. There's some here kneeling tonight praying for their loved ones. Some for children that are lost. Oh God, I pray that you'd send them somebody with good news. There are some here tonight, Lord, that have mates, a husband or wife, or a mother or father that's lost. Please, Father, I pray that you'd speak to them tonight and tell them that we love them and so does Jesus. Bless, I pray, this invitation. Work on our hearts tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake.